Revelation 7 again. We started this a couple weeks ago, and we'll continue our look in this chapter. And uh, we're actually going to look primarily at the first group and really who that first group is that we find in this chapter. And and uh, really, there's those two groups. And, and one of the issues about interpretation is really considering the relationship between those two groups. And so really going to focus on that first group uh, that we were introduced to uh, even last time when we saw that there were some servants of God that were sealed in their foreheads. And that leads us to who these uh, this first group is. So we're going to read verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 7 just to begin. And as we do so, um, hopefully we can keep in mind some of the things that we have already learned about this chapter. So picking up there in verse 1, Revelation 7. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I heard another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed, there were sealed, and hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Nephtali were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now, I mentioned last week that um, some manuscripts and some translations following those manuscripts do not have sealed with every single one of those tribes. Uh, so there is that variant. Uh, but in ours, um, following the majority text and the received text, it does have that sealed for every one of those tribes. But overall, we seal that we see that these are the ones that are sealed there in verses 3 and 4. So when we come to verse 4, we are introduced once again to that group of 144,000. Uh, we mentioned earlier that they are sealed or marked. And again, that pictures or takes us back to the background that we found in Ezekiel chapter 9, remember, um, where God had those who were the faithful remnant of Israel living in Jerusalem during the time of the, the fall to Babylon, uh, he had them sealed. And of course, this was a spiritual sealing, uh, certainly a symbolic sealing to reassure those that did follow after the Lord, that did not um, go into idolatry, that they really did belong to the Lord. And of course, these 144,000 are then sealed with, according to verse 2, the seal of the living God. And one of the big questions about this chapter is not just what the sealing was, uh, but also who this group is. Uh, now, one word that is often used to describe this group is witnesses. You've probably heard that before, the 144,000 witnesses. Uh, this is actually never used in the text about them, to describe them. Uh, you never find it here in chapter 7. You never find it actually in chapter 14 where they're found again. Uh, we're not told specifically that they are 144,000 witnesses. 
Um, that's not to say that they probably don't witness about the Lord and for the Lord, uh, but it's actually never used in the text to describe them. Not in any verb form, not any noun form. Uh, it's not describing who they are or even what they do. Um, so that's something that we don't see in the text about these 144,000. Instead, the only other description that we have about them is that they are, again, verse, uh, verse 3, the servants of our God. Uh, that is the one who uh, the, the angel ascending from the east tells the other four angels, he says, don't fulfill your mission until we've fulfilled my mission, and that is to seal the servants of our God. And, of course, that relates to all the other times in Revelation uh, where we find these servants um, of God, and that starts from, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and it goes all the way through the end of this book. And so there's a special connection between the servants of God here in Revelation 7 and the servants of God elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Um, again, this does not mean that these servants won't witness for the Lord. They most likely will uh, in their words, but also especially in their works. Uh, that certainly might be the physical aspect of this seal, is that those who belong to the Lord will actually look more and more like the Lord in, in order to serve the Lord as, as the servants. But they're actually never described as witnesses here. Now, we already looked at how the number of this group, this is point number one there on your lesson guide, the, the number of this group that John heard has probably some uh, deep symbolic significance to it, uh, especially since it is a multiple of the number 12. And we saw this particularly last Sunday, how in both the Old and New Testaments is often used to describe the fullness of God's people. And, of course, in the Old Testament, it dealt with the 12 tribes of Israel. and the New Testament, we find it in the 12 apostles of Christ. And so 12 is so often a picture of the fullness of the people of God. So there's a very symbolic meaning to it, as well as a literal significance to it. Um, but here we have the 144,000, uh, which is a multiple of the number 12 and the number 24, which in Revelation is used to describe the fullness of the people of God from both Old and New Testament times. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I think when we look at the elders uh, back in, in chapter 4 and 5, they, they number 24. Um, because if you have you know, 12 plus 12, 12 old, 12 new, you know, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, you add them together, you got 24, and you really have a complete picture of the people of God from all time, the Old Testament and New Testament. And so I think... 144,000 being a multiple of both 12 and 24 really has that symbolic picture to it um, as well as this the number itself. So when it comes to the numbers that make up this 144,000, uh, the number 12 seems to indicate the selection of God's servants. And of course, this is something that we see in both the Old and the New Testaments when we look at the 12 uh, tribes and the 12 apostles, especially the 12 apostles. It was not the apostles who chose Christ. It was Christ who chose the apostles, right? He called them, and then he sent them. And so I think the number 12 has the idea of God's specially choosing and selecting his people for his use. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So um, the number 12,000 uh, that we see in the verses that we just read seems to indicate the strength of God's servants wherever they're at because this really comes in a long line of other uh, listings of census back in the Old Testament. And if you remember, that anytime you find a census in the Old Testament, it is about a military census. It, 
You know, it's not calculating all the number of every single person that is alive in the children of Israel, for example, um, whether it's describing those who are, are children or, you know, even old age. Especially if we looked in the book of Numbers, it deals with the tribes of Israel, men who are age 20 through, I forget what it was, but they have to be able to fight. And so I think we have here just a symbol of the strength of God's servants. They are 12,000 from every tribe. So not only are they personally chosen by God to be sealed by God, they are also given the strength of God in order to persevere in their faith through the trials and tribulations that they're going to go through um, in the following chapters that we'll see. And then, of course, we have that final number, uh, the multiple of 12 and 24, 144,000, again, indicating the fullness of God's servants, and even though, you know, when we think of 144,000, we think, okay, that's, that's a pretty big number. That's a lot of people, but not compared to all the other numbers in Revelation. Uh, it's actually a very small number compared to some of those other numbers that we find there. And so the idea is that the strength does not come through numbers, but the strength comes through the Lord. And so numbers doesn't matter uh, because they have the strength and the sealing of the Lord. And the fact is, when it comes to this 144,000, um, when we see them here in chapter 7, and then we see them again in chapter 14, it indicates that even though they're small in number, at the, in the end, none of them will be missing. None of them will be missing. Because God has protected them and protected their faith, sealed them to belong to him for eternity. And so I think you can see those multiples uh, and the symbolic meaning of those multiples as we go through them. 12, 12,000, 144,000, selection strength, and then fullness. If someone has a good S word for fullness, let me know because I can alliterate that better then. So I appreciated uh, men's Bible study yesterday, and, and Rick gave me a good outline of alliterated words. So always helpful. So appreciate that. All right, so what about the name? Uh, that's the number. That's just a little bit of review. Uh, but what about the name that is applied to this number? And this is point number two. Who are these tribes of the children of Israel? that we find there in verse 4. Now, I think this would be a, a very simple and forthright answer. If the list that we have in Revelation, well, actually, first of all, if it didn't have the listing, it would be a pretty simple answer. All right. So if, if we stopped at verse 4 and we didn't have verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, I think the answer to that question, who are these tribes of Israel, would be pretty simple. They would refer to the Old Testament children of Israel. But it would also be more forthright if the list that we do have in Revelation here, in, in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, actually matched the lists, any of the lists that we find in the Old Testament as well. And so on both cases, it's not true. We have these verses, and the list that we have here, and, and there's a, a description of that list there for you as well that we'll go through in a moment, but the list that we have of the 12 tribes of Israel here does not match any of the listings of the 12 tribes of Israel that we have in the Old Testament. And so it seems like the answer is not as simple and not as forthright as we would like it to be or as we would first think it is. You see, the truth is the 12 tribes that we have in these verses, again, do not match any of the lists of the tribes of Israel that we find in the Old Testament. And there's about 20 times in the Old Testament where the 12 tribes are listed or referenced to represent the literal ethnic, we can even describe it as the original children, original tribes of the children of Israel. And of course, 
Um, what was the name of the fellow before his name was changed to Israel? It was Jacob. And how many wives did he have? Well, we'll include the concubines. So there were four. All right. So he had 12 children from four wives, and they're all from Jacob, who was named, renamed to Israel by the Lord. And, uh, and so there's 20 times, and, and they're not listed necessarily in the Old Testament the way we have it here. Like just name, 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 name. There, there are times where we find that. But then there are other times where there's more information about them. So like, you know, it might talk about, for example, Reuben, who was the firstborn. And there might be a couple of verses about him. And then they go to the next one, a couple of verses about him. So when we're talking about these listings, they're not just itemized listings, you know, name, 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 name. It might be name, description, name, description, name, description. Um, if you're interested in getting a listing of all of those times where they're mentioned, I can get that for you. I didn't have time to, to copy this, uh, a chart um, for it. Uh, but it is kind of interesting to cross and compare all of those different listings. Um, but I, I provided two, and I think these two are representative of what we find all throughout the Old Testament. Um, so the first time that we find this listing of the 12 tribes of Israel are in Genesis 29 and 30. And, you know, you'd, you'd kind of expect that the listing of these children would be according to their birth order. And that's what we find in Genesis 29 to 30. It actually goes through, you know, all of the, the, the wives and the concubines and the children that they had. And we're not going to take the time to read through all of those. But the 12 brothers, who would, of course, be the leaders of the 12 tribes that would come from them, are listed there first in your chart. You've got Reuben firstborn. And you got Simeon, you got Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and of course the youngest, Benjamin. So that's what we would expect, right? Twelve tribes of Israel, this is their original listing, these are their original names and the original order that they came into this world. But after these 12 sons and their families went to Egypt, if you remember the story of Moses, God actually formed them into more than a family. That's where he actually, over 400 some years, formed them into a nation, a, a new people. Um, but before Jacob passed away, if you remember what happened, he actually adopted the two sons of Joseph as his own. Uh, we learn about this from Genesis chapter 48, verse 5. And because he loved Joseph... Uh, Joseph certainly was a favorite son of his. He received the coat of many colors, and God used Joseph to preserve Jacob and his whole family as they went down to Egypt. He actually, out of love for Joseph, and certainly under the direction of God, adopted the two sons of Joseph as his own. And the two sons of Joseph were Ephraim and Manasseh. So we have, again, I mean, really, if you look at that, that total, if these two boys, these two eventually men and two tribes would take up Joseph. Instead of 12 tribes of Israel, you actually have 13, right? Because Levi's still in there too, right? Um, we know what happens to him. We'll, we'll look at it here in a minute. Because after God delivered Israel from Egypt, God modified how the 12 tribes would be identified. Because there's 13, and for some reason he wanted 12. And again, I think the reason is because there's a a, a very basic symbolism of God's selection of his people, where, wherever you find it in the Bible. And so he took the tribe of Levi, which you know, would have been that 
that odd man out, if you will. And he took the tribe of Levi for himself to serve as his priests. Make sure I have that there. Levi's circle. All right. So Levi is now replaced with the two sons of Joseph, or Levi and Joseph are replaced with the two sons of Joseph. And so what do we have? Twelve again. And that leads us to another major listing, and that's what you find here in Numbers 1, 5 through 15. Actually, this particular passage um, has them almost you know, listed name by name. Um, but again, you have Reuben, who's the eldest, and that would make sense. Then you've got Simeon, you've got Judah, you've got Issachar. You can see some of the similarities, but you can also see some of the differences in the order of the listings between these two. Right? So you've got Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Now we have the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, and then toward the end here, we have Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali. Uh, this order is first found in Numbers 1, 5 through 15. I mentioned that. Uh, it's also found, uh, I think, at least one other place in the book of Numbers in this exact order. Um, now, the interesting thing is that even though these, I would consider these two to be the more representative of the lists that we find in the Old Testament, from this point on, from Numbers on, the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel sometimes follow the order here in Numbers 11, but most of the time they don't. And so, again, you have a, a number of different kinds of listings in these 20 times you find them in the Old Testament. Um, sometimes the eldest is not first. Sometimes Reuben's not the first. Uh, there are times you'll find Judah, and, of course, that's what we find here in Revelation, right? Judah is actually first in the list. Other times you find Simeon. There's even one place that you find the tribe of Dan as sort of the head of this entire list. And, and that head was basically looking at, at where these tribes would actually be um, in the kingdom. And so, again, we, we find difference in the beginning of the list. Other times, the list will revert back to the original sons of Jacob. So there are other times in the Old Testament where, where it will refer back to Genesis. And you'll find the exact same 12 there as, as you did in, in Genesis. Um, and that would include Levi and Joseph. Uh, two of the ones, two of the passages that you can look at are 1 Chronicles 2, 1 and 2, and then Ezekiel 48, 30 through 35. And again, those are detailed listings, and they, they, they are the exact same thing that we find in Genesis. There are even some times... When the tribes, when there are some tribes missing altogether in the Old Testament. Um, and so instead of 12, there might be 10 mentioned. Uh, there might be 11 mentioned. Um, some of the passages are Numbers chapter 1, verses 20 through 42, Numbers 34, 18 through 28, Judges 1, 17 through 34. I don't know if I put those on your guide or not. But um, so probably about 23 or 24 times you find the the tribes listed, and sometimes they're not full 12. Um, you know, you'd have to go in the context to find out why one is missing, why two are missing. Um, so again, it's different. It's different in all throughout the Old Testament. Um, I mentioned earlier that there is a, a helpful chart, and I, again, I didn't make a copy of it, but I can bring it next week if you'd like, or even tonight, um, that I think would be helpful to kind of compare these things. All right, so we, we see the original list in Genesis. We see sort of the modified list in Numbers. So when we come back to Revelation 7, what do we make of this list of the tribes of the children of Israel? 
Well, before we kind of um, try to figure out what this all means, let's look at some of the key differences. Um, the first key difference is who is in place number one? It is the tribe of Judah, right? Now, again, this is not unusual. Um, actually, in the Old Testament, Judah is found in first place in seven other times. So it's not an unusual thing to have somebody else up front besides Reuben, the eldest. So that's not really uncommon. Um, and I think the reason why Judah is listed here first is pretty clear, uh, especially in the context of the book of Revelation, is because it's the royal tribe, right? Um, in, in Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And again, you'd think that would be the eldest, but it's not. God in his wisdom said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And there are many who believe that Shiloh is a messianic title, referring to Christ and himself coming. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And so when we come to Revelation, who is the leader and the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's the Lord Jesus. So I think we have a clear understanding of why Judah's first. Because Jesus is first. Uh, again, Revelation 5, 5, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one that was prophesied. He's Shiloh that has come. And so clearly this is his band. This is his tribe. And these are his tribes. This is his nation, right? So that's the first difference. I think we kind of understand why it's there. Second difference is this time the tribe of Levi is actually included. The tribe of Levi is included. Now, I mentioned there are times in the Old Testament where Levi is sometimes included, but it's always referring back to the Genesis list, the original list. Most of the time in the Old Testament, Levi is not mentioned, and the reason for that is because the Lord was to be their portion. And they were supposed to be the, the kingdom or really the tribe of the priests. Um, however, they are found, again, in the Old Testament. But perhaps the reason why it's included here is because when we come to the New Testament, who is our great high priest? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what tribe is he from? Not Levi, but Judah, right? He's actually a priest after the order of Melchizedek, according to the book of Hebrews. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we really don't have a need for a tribe of priests. We don't really need anybody else to go to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe that's one of the reasons why Levi is included in this particular list. Um, now, since Levi is included, what would you expect in this list? Remember, when Levi was excluded, who was included back in the Old Testament? Joseph's two sons. So now with Levi coming back into the list, who do you think should be removed from the list? Joseph's two sons, right? You'd expect that, uh, that Joseph would take his place or to take their place among the sons, but that's not the case. And that leads us perhaps to the third difference, which is the most significant difference. And that is that both Joseph and one of his sons are included. And in this case, Joseph is actually number 11 in this list, whereas Manasseh is number six. So, so even the son has a higher position in this list, if you will, than his father. And another interesting difference is that Joseph and Manasseh aren't even next to each other. In just about every other place in the Old Testament in these lists, we have Ephraim and Manasseh together. <laughs> but in this case, 
they're vastly separate. And it's not even Manasseh and Ephraim, it's Manasseh and Joseph. So this all leads to the tribes of Dan and Joseph's from son Ephraim. They are completely missing, right? They are completely missing. And, and the question is, I wonder why. Why do we have such a strange list here in Revelation than we ever do, did in, in the Old Testament? Now, it is interesting because in the Old Testament lists, Dan is only missing in one passage. Out of all 20, where all 12 are mentioned, Dan is missing in one passage only. And that's in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 through 8. Also, when it comes to Ephraim, which was Joseph's son, Ephraim is never missing when his brother Manasseh is present. So when Manasseh's there, um, Ephraim's there. But that's not true about Manasseh. There's one interesting passage in the Old Testament that's actually the opposite of what's going on here. Um, in Deuteronomy 33, verses 6 through 25, Ephraim's there with Joseph and not Manasseh. Whereas here we have Manasseh and Joseph and not Ephraim. Really strange to see these differences. What do we make of all these differences? Well, especially the differences of these that are absent. Some have suggested that the reason Dan and Ephraim are missing in Revelation 7 is because of their close association with idolatry, and especially the tribe of Dan. I mean, they were very much steeped in idolatry. Um, that's very clear. Uh, I put some passages there on your lesson guide that you can look up. Um, Dan had some major issues with idolatry and just blatant wickedness against God. Find this in Judges, in the time of the Judges and in the time of the Kings. Um, also, Ephraim, uh, which sort of became the, the name for the northern tribe of Israel, which really left, was split off from Judah and immediately went into idolatry. Um, you know, they set up those golden calves and, and they worshiped those golden calves. But they were wicked even before. They were wicked in the time of Judges and also, um, it's referenced there in Hosea 4.17. So, is this the reason why Dan and Ephraim would be missing from this list? Some would say yes. But isn't it also true that idolatry was rampant in all of the northern tribes of Israel? And really, any idolatry is as wicked as some idolatry. I mean, idolatry is an abomination to the Lord. And so, even though it seems like the idolatry in the tribe of Dan was particularly severe, idolatry was rampant throughout the northern tribes. So why... Are there any northern tribes mentioned in this list? I don't think it was just primarily because of idolatry that they're missing. Um, might have something to play with that, all right? Some, some reason behind that. Others have suggested, not referring to Ephraim, but specifically for Dan, the reason why Dan is missing in Revelation 7 is because of an ancient Jewish tradition that a future Antichrist would come from that tribe. Um, they actually look at several passages uh, one of them is in Gen Genesis 49, 17, which was Jacob's blessing of his sons. Um, also, in Deuteronomy 33, 22, which is Moses' blessing of the tribes. And then one kind of obscure verse in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 16. But if you look at those verses, there really is no clear reference to an Antichrist in any of those verses. In fact, two of the verses that they would claim talks about Dan in terms of an antichrist are actually 
blessings on the, on the tribe of Dan. So Genesis 49, 17, even though when you read through it, you think, how can that be a blessing? You know, um, it really was intended to be a blessing for Dan and for the tribes of Israel. And De Deuteronomy 33, 22, also a prophetic blessing by Moses. Um, there really are no clear references to an antichrist in any of those, these verses. However, um, it didn't still change the fact that some Jews would look at Jeremiah 8, 16 and say, yes, the reason why Dan... Uh, or Dan is going to be excluded from God's people is because there's an Antichrist coming. Um, this was actually a position adopted by some early church leaders like Arrhenius uh, back in the second century and Hippolytus also in the second and third century, Andrew of Caesarea in the, I think, the fifth century, fourth and fifth century. But again, if you study those verses out, there's no clear reference of an Antichrist in any of them. Um, doesn't mean that it's necessarily a wrong idea, uh, but I don't think you can get it scripturally from those verses. Um, others have suggested that because of how these two tribes led the idolatry that was rampant in the Old Testament, that here they lost their place in the catalog of the tribes of the children of Israel. Um, so they say, well, because Ephraim and Dan were known for their idolatry and they led everybody else in that, that's why here we don't find them in, in Revelation chapter 7. However, in the final two passages in the Old Testament where the 12 tribes are found, uh, this takes us to Ezekiel chapter 48. And if you know anything about the prophecy of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 48, it's describing something that has never happened in this world yet. It's talking about a future kingdom for God's people, a future kingdom where it, I mean, even the geography of the world has changed. We looked at that uh, a year or so ago, and we were going through the book of Ezekiel and the eschatology there. But in Ezekiel 48, it is clearly describing a future Israel. It's describing a future time when the tribes of Israel will be gathered together to their own land. You know, I think the men referenced this in our study of Jeremiah even yesterday. And the interesting thing is here in Ezekiel 48, both Dan and Ephraim are found. And here in Ezekiel 48 verse 2, it's the border of Dan that is mentioned first. And so when we, again, look at these two different listings, and especially the last time we find them in the Old Testament, and the only time that we find them here in the New Testament, we're thinking, well, why is Dan there and not here? Why is Ephraim there but not here? Again, some would say that in Ezekiel we find a restored Israel, according to a lot of the promises that we find in the Old Testament. And so, you know, they would say, well, that, that's why, um, you know, they would be there. But the interesting thing is here in Revelation 7, there's one particular word that I think really um, kind of does away with the idea of this being just the Old Testament children of Israel that we've become accustomed to. In Revelation 7, John tells us that the list he heard was from, verse 4, all the tribes of the children of Israel. All the tribes. And we've already seen that when we think of the historic children of Israel, the original tribes that we find in the Old Testament, when he talks about all of them, all of them aren't here for whatever reason. So it seems like John is describing something different than the ethnic tribes of Israel that we find in the Old Testament. And even what we might say is a different Israel, a different Israel altogether, which is described using the same number and the same names of the original Israel, 
as symbols. Symbols that are similar to the tribes of the Old Testament Israel, but apply to a different country, a different Israel. Um, I think when we think about even just global and we think about how nations have sort of rebirthed over time. You know, you think about what Germany was like, you know, before World War II and what Germany was like after World War II. And then what Germany became like, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, even though, you know, you, you apply Germany to all three of those conditions, you really have a, another Germany in each one of those situations. So there are morphs, you know, there's transformations of people, there's transformations of countries. And I, I think you could apply something similar going on here in the book of Revelation. Um, it may be describing an entirely different Israel. And I think when we look at it this way, there seems to be other support for this in how John describes both ethnic Israel, which would be the Old Testament Israel, and the true servants of God that we find here in the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, when you go back to chapter 2, um, because chapters 2 and 3 is a major section in Revelation, and what are they about? What is chapter 2 and 3 about? They're letters to the seven churches that we find in Asia, right? And so here in chapters in 2 and 3, uh, we find in the letters to two of the faithful churches. Now, we, we looked at seven of those, and there's really two that we could say were fully faithful because there was no, um, there was nothing but commendation for them. And that was the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. But when Jesus talks to them and writes to them, Jesus talks about the original and ethnic tribes of Israel in a negative way. Um, in fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, at the latter part, to the church in Smyrna, that faithful church in Smyrna, Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are, what? Jews. They say they're Jews, but they are not Jews, but instead they're the synagogue of Satan. The word translated here, Jews, is eudios, all right? It's basically the word for those who would be members of the Jews in the Jewish nation or even the Jewish tribe. This is what the tribes of Israel were called in Roman times. Um, there's, it's actually used 187 times in the New Testament. And even though technically those who are of the tribe of Judah are the Jews, yet really doesn't matter whether you're the tribe of anything. In Roman times, you were a Jew, all right? Even today, you know, we, we, we often talk about the Jews. Well, even if you're of the tribe of whatever, you know, we don't, they don't even often know what tribe they are. But, they, you know, they're all called Jews. And so he's not just talking about those who are the members of the tribe of Judah. He's talking about the ethnic people of Israel from the Old Testament. And, of course, Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, and actually, you have the same root word there, Eudos. Jesus, who is the line of the tribe of Judah, says about the Jews, his own ethnic people, that they are not true Jews. He says they are the synagogue of Satan. So there were synagogues in these cities where these churches were, and there were synagogues of people that were of the ethnic and religious group known as the Jews. And Jesus is saying they're not true Jews because they're not true believers of the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes someone a true Jew, according to the Lord Jesus. Um, and of course, the synagogue of Satan is a reference to the Jewish religion without Christ, even today. That, sadly, is what a synagogue is. It's not the synagogue of the one true God. 
It is a synagogue of Satan because they don't believe in the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a harsh way of putting it. But I'm not saying it that way. Jesus himself is. Uh, go to chapter 3 and uh, the same verse, uh, verse 9. To the church in Philadelphia, Jesus describes the ethnic tribes of Israel in the same way. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So even here in Revelation, we kind of get a glimpse of what Jesus thinks about the ethnic tribes, the original tribes of the children of Israel from the Old Testament. According to Jesus, they're not true Jews. They may be ethnic Jews. They may be related to those 12 tribes. They may be related to Jacob and Israel and, and Abraham and Isaac and all of them. But because they do not believe in Christ, they're not part of his church. They're not part of the true body of Christ. They're not part of this true Jewish people. I think this also aligns closely with what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, Paul even describes the um, ethnic, the original ethnic tribes of Israel in this way. Romans 9, 6, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting distinction, okay? If you're of Israel, that means you're, you were born into that family. But to be true Israel, you actually have to be believing in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that those who do not believe in Christ are not all Israel, which are of Israel. This simply means that if, even if someone can trace their ancestry, you know, like some of you probably done with your own background, even if someone can trace their ancestry back to being a member of one of the original tribes of Israel, which is kind of hard to do, actually. Um, some people have, um, but for a lot of them, they, they, that's been kind of lost in history. They don't even know what tribe they're a member of. It does not mean that they're a member of the true Israel, which are those who possess the faith of Abraham and believe in the promises given to Abraham about Christ. So the original tribes of Israel, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to the New Testament, are not the true Israel, which is made up only of those who are the children of the promise. Um, Paul says in Romans 9.8, They which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted for the seed. And so there is a distinction between the ethnic original tribes of the Old Testament and what could be described as the true inherit the true heirs of those blessings, even in the New Testament, which is true Israel. So, so can there be someone who is of the original tribes of Israel and be a member of true Israel? Absolutely. Those are Jews that believe in Christ, just like you and I believe in Christ. And they are the truest Israel because they are fulfilling exactly what God had in, had in store for them and had planned for them from the very beginning. Um, so the original tribes of Israel are not the true Israel, but also in Revelation, there are many descriptions and promises that were given to the true Israel of the Old Testament that are clearly applied to those who have no natural ties to the tribes of Israel. So do you realize that there are some promises that were given just to the ethnic tribes in the Old Testament that even in Revelation are applied to us and given to us? Um, here's just a few. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. You can turn to these verses if you'd like, but you can look at them later too. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. After God brings the original tribes of Israel out of Egypt. All right, so this is, he brings them all out. God says to Moses, he says, 
I want you to tell my people, if they will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And listen to what he says to the ethnic tribes, the original tribes of Israel. He says, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Kingdom of priests, holy nation, all right? Now when we come to Revelation, this special promise is applied to Christians. Uh, remember, in Revelation you know, 1 through 3, it really has application to the church. Look at verse, five, uh, verse 6 of Revelation 1. John says about believers, about Christians, about the churches, that God hath made us, or Jesus, hath made us what? Kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. There are other manuscripts and translations that put this the same way Exodus does, a kingdom of priests. And so the application of that Old Testament promise is actually given to the church. This applies to us as believers. Gentile Christians are now graciously included in this promise that is originally given to the tribes of Israel. Uh, another one, uh, go with me to chapter 5 of Revelation. And look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Again, here we have the 24 elders. I mentioned before, I, I think they probably um, can be seen as representatives of God's people. And they sing a new song in verse 9 of chapter 5, saying, You are worthy to take the book to the Lord. Open the seals thereof, which we've already seen. You are slain. You've redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Not just the children of Israel, not the ethnic tribes. And hath made us unto our God, what? Kings and priests. So we have it again there. An Old Testament promise to the ethnic tribes applied to the church. And then he says, we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. Now, not only are the promise of ex is the promise of Exodus here, but we also have another promise found in the book of Daniel. Um, there's a promise in Daniel 7, 18 and verse 22 that it says, the saints of the Most High, and back then, the Jews would have thought themselves. This is a promise to ethnic tribes of Israel upon the restoration of Israel from Babylon. The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. In other words, the reigning that is promised back then is applied to the church even here in Revelation 7. Another passage, Isaiah 62, verse 2. Another promise to the tribes of Israel. This is interesting. Isaiah 62, verse 2. The Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Isn't that something that we find in Revelation as well? Who's given a new name? Not those who are members of the ethnic tribes. That's, you know, not, I mean, that, that has a special relevance, yes, but it's not a spiritual relevance. But in chapter 2, verse 17, in chapter 3, verse 12, there are churches in the faithful churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia who are promised to be given a new name. Um, we're running out of time. We're going to just skip over the next one. But basically this one here is a promise to Israel, Old Testament tribes, that the Gentiles will bow before their feet. And in Revelation 3, 9, that's applied to the church. Unbelievers will bow before the feet of true believers. So even though we have the original tribes of Israel, Old Testament, 
the true Israel, which are believers in Christ, especially the Jews who are believers in Christ. I think in Revelation we can describe what we find here as a total Israel, which is everyone who believes in Christ, Jew or Gentile. Remember that, that, that wall of partition is broken because of Christ? So I would describe what we have in Re here Revelation is a total Israel. Um, this is something that we find also in the New Testament, where Israel is used as a symbolic name or description for Christians, no matter what their ethnic background. And I know that there's some disagreement about some of these verses, but I think if you really looked at these verses in context, you're seeing that it's being applied to Christians. It's being applied to the church. It's not being applied to the ethnic tribes. Look at Romans 2.29. It says, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So who is a member of the spiritual, true, total Israel? A true Jew, if you will. It's not, it doesn't have to do with your ancestry. It doesn't have to do with your flesh. He's describing something inwardly. What about Galatians 3, 28 and 29? Um, Paul also says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And of course, the promise that was given to Abraham was also given to Isaac and then also given to Jacob and also given to the 12 tribes. And so the picture here is that the church is this special seed. Another verse, Galatians 6, 15 and 16. In Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy. And I think here is a clear demonstration of a symbolic use of this term for God's people in the New Testament and Old Testament who are believing in Christ. They are the true Israel of God. And I also think in James chapter 1, James, now James... People will sometimes look at James and say, well, this is a letter to, to just Jews. But as you go through the book of James, it's not a Jewish letter. It's a Christian letter. Uh, he even talks about the church. But here he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to who? The 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greeting. I, I don't think he's talking in terms of the ethnic tribes of Israel, the Old Testament use. He's talking about believers in Christ, the, the true and total Israel. It's kind of like we're citizens of another country, which we are, right? We're citizens of America, but really we're citizens where? Of heaven and the new heavens and new earth. And I think what we find here in Revelation 7 is basically Jesus saying, these are the true citizens of the new Israel, the total Israel, of which the capital is the new Jerusalem. Is the new Jerusalem just going to be the capital for the ethnic tribes back, you know, that came to Christ? No. The new Jerusalem is the capital of the new heavens and new earth for all kindreds, tribes, people, and tongues. So I would say that the 144,000 that are sealed of all the tribes of the children of Israel is a symbolic way, really a highly symbolic way, to, to refer to the total remnant of faithful Christians who are the true citizens of the total and final Israel that is described later in chapter one, 21. And I think this bears out as we go along in the book of Revelation. When we look at uh, the 144,000 in Revelation 14, We'll come back to this. When we look at chapter 21 and all of the symbolism of what the new Jerusalem is going to look like, I think we'll come back to this time and time again. It's not talking about the ethnic tribes. 
We're talking about a different Israel, even a future Israel, the final Israel, the Israel that includes all of God's people who believe in Christ. doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. 